This is God's word. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. God of grace, uh, as we come into this room, some of us are trying to sort out, maybe for the first time or as a lifelong question, uh, sorting out if we can find credibility at all in the Bible that we just read from and in the movement of Christianity that, that springs from its pages, while others of us are here with really an unlikely, unexpected commitment to meeting you in these pages and expecting and hoping to hear something of your voice today because we have before and we want our life to look like things that you want it to look like. And despite that vast spectrum of places that we find ourselves on, it can be said that we're all, at the end of the day, we're all the same. We all have a universal similarity and that we're all more of a mess than we want anyone to know. And thankfully, these pages tell us over and over again that you see our fragmented, broken lives and your love for us propels you towards us anyway. So that in the end, this collection of broken people are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. That is your grace, and we ask that you speak to us through that grace today in a transformative way. Amen. The anti-superiority message. That's what we're talking about today. The Bible's anti-superiority message. Uh, this, this guy, David Kinnaman, writes a book called Unchristian, what, uh, what a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And uh, so it's research survey-based as opposed to opinion-based, this book. And, and they, they do these surveys in North Americans... And this is, this is a quote. It's actually in your worship guide, this quote. Um, just very, very briefly saying this. Respondents to our surveys believe Christians are trying, consciously or not, to justify feelings of moral or spiritual superiority. Uh, I was, you know, I went on vacation and I was on the plane and one of the people that I sat next to really kind of opened up about a lot of stuff. And at one point he was describing how um, he, he describes himself as a, as a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Um, he, he said that at one point um, he helped start a church that was intended to, to give open arms to the homeless community in the city of Denver. And he was one of the main, very young kind of pastors starting this. Um, he, he went on to re- reference scripture. Um, and, and then on the other hand, um, he said... That, another set of things that in some ways uh, creates a little bit of dissonance. He, he was saying how there's really not 
almost on purpose, he doesn't associate himself right now with any kind of uh, group of Christians or congregation that ever that meets. He talked about having kind of just a dissonance in general with hanging around Christian people, and um, and and he just kind of talked about how he, he didn't even he had never even really been baptized, which is sort of that universal initiation into the Christian faith. And as I listened to all of that, I just it started to rise to the surface a little bit what what was going on. I didn't have a lot of time with him, but enough to just see maybe. What, it's, what seemed to be going on was a little bit of this problem of Christians and his experience. He, he had been burned a little bit by that sort of moral and ethical and spiritual superiority factor that he'd run into in churches and groups of Christians that he'd had uh, interactions with. So he's just trying to kind of heal and find his way back to whatever his faith might look like. I think that's actually not a very uncommon Experience. Maybe some of you have had that or are having that now and kind of dealing with that. The Bible's really clear. Romans chapter 11 is really clear on there is no place for a sense of superiority towards others, anyone, within the Christian church, within those who follow Jesus, however you want to say it, within those who connect themselves with the message of Jesus. There's, there's just no place. It's foreign. It doesn't gel with Christianity to, to have some sort of um, sense of thinking highly of yourself or more highly of yourself than others who maybe don't have that same uh, set of beliefs or same connection to God. Um, and Romans 11 addresses this head on in a totally different... I mean, I just described basically our American context with this anti-superiority message. But there's a whole different one. We won't sidetrack on it too much. But there's a whole different one in Romans, and you can see the evidence of it throughout this, uh, throughout this chapter. In fact, notable uh, New Testament scholar, still alive, his name's N.T. Wright, he, he talks about how, the, when he describes the book of Romans, this is what he says. Let me get it here. Just a short quote from him describing the whole letter to the Romans. He says, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Paul's great hope in writing Romans is to quash any potential Gentile Christian arrogance against Israel. He goes on to say that the rhetorical sharp edge of the whole letter is in chapter 11, the part we're looking at today. In other words, this is the anti-arrogance, anti-smugness, anti-superiority chapter of, of a book that has a key desire to get that message across. And so you see in Romans chapter 11, we didn't, I'll just note these quickly because we didn't read them, but if you look at 11 verse 18, 11 verse 20, 11 verse 25, and as you cross over into chapter 12, 12 verse 3, there's several messages that just keep hitting home, you know, and using different words, about superiority, about arrogance, about thinking highly of yourself. That's what this is talking about. I think that's a... I mean, if you just think about it, I doubt many, if any of you, would disagree with, with that general message. Let's, you know, let's, let's play nice. Let's all not, not think highly of ourselves and walk around the world thinking we're better than other people. You know, it's, it's a message potentially that sells pretty, pretty well on a simple level with yourself and most of your friends, I'm guessing. That's a message that could go viral, right? I mean, that's a, but 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 let's not jump jump to it too quickly and too simplistically because there's something very unique about how the Bible gets us to that anti-superiority message. Very unique about it. it's it's a it's a it's a direction that we 
our default drive is to not go in the direction that the Bible goes in order to get to that endpoint. In fact, our default drive is to say, well, okay, we want to have a philosophy that supports not being, we want to have a life philosophy that supports not acting superior to other people. Well, surely it is found in saying everyone is worthy of the good life. Everyone is equally deserving. And let's all just try to believe that. Let's try to see everyone in the most possible, uh, the best possible light so that that can be affirmed. And that's a, I think that's a common philosophy or a common attempt to try to just not be judgmental and try to just assume the best about it. Everyone is deserving. Everyone's worthy. Now, the problem with that, that sounds wonderful, and I, I wouldn't discourage you from necessarily living a life that way. It sounds great. But the problem with that is that there will come a point, if it hasn't yet, where someone you know will become undeserving in your eyes. And, 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 and rightfully so in many cases. There's some, somebody will wrong you. Somebody will hurt you. Somebody will, you know will act really just quote, very self-centered in their actions towards you and it'll hurt. And it'll create huge problems in relationships. So then you have this problem. Then you have a little bit of cognitive dissonance if you had that starting point is that now you have a philosophy that's not supported by this. You have someone in your life who's undeserving, who's not worth worthy of the good life in how they've treated you or worthy of a good response from you. So you have to then tweak your philosophy a little bit. Maybe you move on to saying something like this. I heard someone say this. Well, you know, most people, most people are deserving and worthy and worthy of my affirmation and my um, positive you know, interactions with them. Most people. Um, most people have their in- good intentions. Most people, most of the time. But th- ne- see, now you've created a problem because now you have, it really seems to me at least like a burden. You have this burden of deciphering, <laughs> of endless deciphering of, and where is that line? You know, where, who are those people that, you know, is it, is it like most people say, is it just the axe murderers that we, you know, you know people say that, you know, oh, I'm not an axe murderer. I mean, is it where, that's a, you know, it's quite a standard, don't you think? Just, to, just an aside. But I mean, well, where where do you it it becomes an endless game. Well, who's in? Who's who are these most of the people, and which are the ones that really just deserve my scorn, and that I really can legitimately just look down on? The Bible doesn't start in the same place. The Bible actually has a, a unique way of getting to an anti-superiority message that you see um, coming here in verse 32, where it's uh, I mean it's just hinted at, but it's all throughout the Bible. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. And the word there is comprehensive. Everyone. Everyone. This is, the, the Bible affirms this over and over again, that there is this... Um, what the Bible is asking you to do, um, basically, is... Um, well, what we just sang about, really. Just We sang about, um, in the very first song of the service... There's this, we're all kind of invited to sing these words and to admit them as being true about us, that I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Um, when I think about wandering, just because of my life stage right here, um, right now, I have a almost two-year-old girl who wanders, and I spend a good deal of time 
following her as she wanders everywhere. And, you know, yesterday, I felt really intense about it because yesterday we had a pool, we were at a pool party with, with some of my family and talk about exhausting, you know, trying to just, oh, oh, she's close. Oh, you know, just constantly, oh, where's she going to go? Is she going, okay, the pool, you know, just, she's got a life vest on and all that, but still just exhausting chasing this child around as she just wanders anywhere and she doesn't necessarily know what's best for her. Example. So we're flying on the plane, and she's very active and energetic. Her name is Mabel. I love her. Don't worry. It, it, it was very cute. We, we, uh, at some point, she was just too wiry, and she's a, she doesn't have her own seat, so I had to get up, and, and I wanted to do a couple walks up and down the aisle. And I didn't even anticipate this, but she's starting to verbalize things. She's starting to talk, and when we got to the front of the plane, I think she's a genius for this, actually, by the way, but when we got to the front of the plane, she saw the, the, the place where we had come in the plane, and she saw different levers and a little window on it, and she said, open it. <laughs> open it, she said. The little, actually, open it. That's kind of how it with a little D in there. Open it. And, uh, and I, just, I just laughed. But what a great picture of what that song is talking about, what the Bible talks about in terms of our condition, our, our approach towards God, our approach towards life. How, how often do you find yourself, I mean, if you're a Christian, how often do you find yourself asking God to uh, come on it doesn't feel like life's going anywhere can we just open it can we, can we get that door open I think it's a good time now to open this door don't you think so and you know if, if you could kind of see and sometimes you do later looking back on life you, you, God would, would chuckle and say uh, come on we're, we're going places just fine let's, let's go on back to the seat you know trust me that's really literally what life can be like um, so prone to wander in a sense, it's hard. This is really hard for us to imagine that the route to an anti-superiority message is to start in this place of admission of this. That the it's hard to imagine that the most admirable spirituality, the most humble life, the most uh, contagious kind of love that you could have starts with this honest assessment, of the truth about your condition. You know, your your GPS is screwed up, and you're you're liable to drive off a cliff. <laughs> That, I mean, that is just the kind of raw, honest assessment that actually what we call the gospel, which is good, new, good news. <laughs> it's hard to believe it when it starts this way, but it really is. It's good news, and it starts you in this kind of place. And that's not how we would normally go. In fact, Emil Brunner, one of the notable kind of biblical scholars of the 20th century, he passed away in 1966, um, he writes this, All man-made religion stands in opposition to the gospel. It is an ascent, man-made religion, he's saying, is an ascent towards the eternal, perfect God. Up, up, up. That is its call. God is high above. We are down below. And now we shall soar by means of our moral, spiritual, and religious endeavors out of the earthly human depths into divine heights. God is too high, he says, and the evil too deep for us to reach the goal this way. Our souls become crippled and, cr- and cramped by trying to rise to the highest height. The end is despair or self-righteousness that leaves room neither for the love of God nor the love of others. So, he says, if we are honest, we have to say that we cannot reach the goal. The, if, if you pay careful attention to the Bible... You can be assured of this, that, the, that, that this is, if you want to know, sometimes you just want to know, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, God? Well, the Bible is quite clear. The God of 
of your life, the God of, of millipedes and the Milky Way galaxy, that God wants you to ground your life in the truth about yourself, the honest truth about yourself. So think of that as like point one of two points on the step towards uh, an anti-superiority life and an anti-superiority message. And that point one sets you up. You can't stay there because it sets you up for the sort of the, one, the second punch, the one-two punch, which is really important. And you can't just stop with number one. You have to move on to opening your life to God's mercy. Open your life to God's mercy. That's in this passage as well. And it, it, it's all throughout Romans 11. It's all throughout the book of Romans. That that is where you root your life. You, you root your life. Sometimes it's talked about rooting your life in God's kindness. Sometimes it's talking about uh, live your life in view of God's mercy. But it's the center. It's what you need at the center of your life. God's mercy. Um, I think one of the best, if you want another angle on Romans chapter 11, because if you ever sit down and just read the whole chapter of Romans 11, it's kind of confusing. Another great angle that makes it come alive is what Jesus says about, in a couple of parables, um, one, one time it's recorded in Luke and another time in Matthew, he talks about someone inviting people to a wedding banquet. Some of you have heard this story. And he invites all these people, and as he sends his, his messengers out to, to, to make sure they're coming, he, they get all these replies. You know, no, I, I can't make it. They're all excuses. They're all things that are happening, and all these people aren't going to actually come to this very generous, big, important social event, this wedding banquet. And so the response of the big inviter to this banquet, the person throwing this, this big feast and banquet, the, the response is to send messengers out uh, to the streets and to people who, you know, are the sort of the folks that are overlooked in society. Just get anyone. Fill the room. This room must be full for this banquet. And then even uh, in one of the versions of this parable, they, he sends them out again after they've gone out once. They just go. Go to the far-reaching lands. Just keep going. Just go, go, go. Get the message out. Invite people. Come on. That's a great... Uh, a great connection with this passage. I mean, the original context, again, I'm not going there very much today. The original context is kind of the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And the Gentiles, I guess, would be the second ones invited and the third ones invited in the schema of the biblical narrative. Um, the Jews have, have, by and large, rejected Jesus at the point of, of this being written, and the church is growing among Gentiles. Anyway, so, so those are the ones who are the, the ones who have been invited kind of secondarily. It connects. It connects very much with Romans chapter 11. But here's what I want to focus on, just a couple of things out of that um, parable. The first is that how, think about this, how crazy, how ridiculous would it be for any of the people who end up at that banquet, who have been invited to it and end up sitting there, how ridiculous it would be for them to boast as they sit there or after the fact or any time about how much they deserved and how wonderful they were that they were picked to come to this banquet. And the way that parable is set up, that, that, that just shows itself to be ridiculous, that there would be superior, a sense of superiority about having been able to sit at this amazing event. So just, just think about that. That sort of disqualifies the superiority factor on that grounds. But also think about this. Because often we want to look at a parable or a part of Scripture that, and we really want to focus on the, those differences between all the people who are invited and what's going on there and who are they and who am I and how do I fit in. And, and a lot of times what you've got to just do with this kind of stuff is just say, what, let, let's look at this with fresh eyes. What is it saying about God 
And it turns out, as you look at it, it is, it is just a, and, and so is Romans 11, it's just one grand point about the inviter. It, it's, it's this grand point about how this person, this, well really it's pointing to God, so God in his invitation of grace that's going out into the world and that started with Jesus, this God is totally unhindered by different people's acceptance or unacceptance of his message. It is going to go out. His mercy needs to go out. He, it needs to reach more and more people. It's going out regardless of who those people are. That, that's just the huge message. Romans 11, the wedding banquet, parable, God's mercy. I want you to think about taking time what would it look like for you to take time regularly in your life to connect with God on that kind of level? Connect with that mercy that God brings to all of us and to you. That there's nothing about your acceptance and your measuring up that's, that's it's any part of the equation. It's all about God's mercy coming to you. Do you believe this message, this basic message? God has been so merciful to you. God has been so merciful to, to me and to you. Just you know, think about that over and over. Figure out a way to get your life connected to that, that theme, that thread, over and over in a, on a daily basis if possible. Some way connect your life over and over to that same message. God has been merciful to me because that's that's the route towards uh, anti-superiority a life that doesn't look down on others because of what you have and really it comes to a head for the for the Christian in the story of how well it comes to a head on, on the cross when what happens but God sends his son and his son his son puts aside legitimate superiority and chooses not to grab hold of all of that superiority and instead humble himself, come down to our level. Why? I mean, the, the, one of the songs we sang talked about the scorn and shame that Jesus took on the cross. Why would he do that? Why would he take that on? So that, so that he could have you at the banquet. So that you could know that you are worthy that you could know always, you could know eternally, you could know every day that your, your connection with God doesn't rely on your faithfulness. It relies completely on the way that God has decided to be merciful to you. Now, that's an that's a anti-superiority message that sticks. And if you, consider, if you consider the cross really as a personal thing for you, it's something that is a personal invitation to you that requires a personal response and if you, if you move towards that mercy of God and, and let it come into really the center of your life, that you live life always in view of God's mercy, I think what, what you'll find is you'll find it nearly impossible. If you're doing that, if you're keeping that mercy at the center of your life, you'll find it nearly impossible to look down on other people and think that you're better than them. I just want to close very simply with something that was very, timed very well. A good friend of mine said this week, this is very short and simple, and this is what he said. The closer I get to God, the more fascinated I become with other people. 
And the easier it gets to love them, and the harder it gets to write them off. Will you pray with me? God of mercy, would you uh, help in whatever ways you choose to drive this message of mercy and grace into our lives? We are so on guard often towards you because we fear the confrontation or we fear you peeling back the layers and finding out the real us. So give us mercy. Teach us about your mercy so we would open up our lives to it and help us even as we have the chance to do that as we come to your table in a few minutes. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.